Well, good morning, church family. I always try to greet you at the outside as much as I can. Some of you all sneak in different doors, sneaky people. And so as I finish up my mint, <laughs> let me just say hi, everybody. I'm um, become more and more aware that there's a growing number of individuals that are gathering with us online simply because of the fact that they just can't physically be here. And that's what why we provide an opportunity for people to gather online is because of that reason is because you physically just can't be here because uh, you're homebound. There's, there's some sort of illness or some sort of physical limitation. I just want to take this moment to say hello to everybody that are gathering with us online. We're with you. We are still one church, one baptism, one Lord, united in one spirit. I just want to encourage you guys as you guys are where you are. I know you probably want to be here. Uh, but there's just some sort of hindrance uh, that, that kind of like uh, stands between us. But we're with you nonetheless. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 as we go into and we're going to finish uh, Matthew 19. I'll not be getting into chapter 20, though I anticipated. Sometimes I get really excited thinking I'm going to go through like multiple chapters on a Sunday. And uh, it just never works out that way. So we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 19 and then we'll jump into Matthew 20 next week. And then after next week, we'll go into a Christmas series together. The story that we're going to learn about today is found in all three of the synoptic gospels. Remember synoptic, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's kind of referred to as the other gospel. He's <laughs> kind of that guy. Um, but nonetheless, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar. That's why they're called synoptic gospels. And this story uh, that we're going to go into today is actually recorded in all three of them. And we're going to kind of pull from all three of them today, which is why we have the series Matthew and Friends, so that we can understand a little bit more of the whole, the whole story and the whole concept. But I want to do a little review, starting in Matthew 17, uh, to bring this up to where we are today, so you understand the flow of how everything's going. In Matthew chapter 17, there was an incredible thing that occurred. Uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the, uh, the mountain for this transfiguration moment. You'll remember, as we studied, that Jesus was transformed into his perfection. Some would even say that it was the resurrected form of Christ before he even died and then rose again. Uh, so, but, but being able to look at that and say, wow, this was a moment. Then Moses and Elijah popped up. And uh, Peter, remember Peter? He was like, uh, it's great for us to be here. Remember, he had kind of a weird moment. And we kind of talked through that. So we just come out of the transfiguration. And now we're, we go into Matthew 18, where the, the disciples, probably fresh off of this whole feel of, Wait, not all the disciples got to go with Jesus up to this thing, and they're all glowing like, it was the greatest thing ever, and so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They start having these side conversations. So who's the greatest? You think you're the greatest? You know what? You're the greatest. You doubt everything, right? And so you're having these conversations, and Jesus, what are you guys doing? Well, who's the greatest? We're just curious, asking for a friend, right? So they want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus says, so anyone who becomes as humble as this little child, Jesus brought in a little child into the conversation physically and uh, uh, literally and figuratively about how those that have uh, the humility, this humble approach to God, like this little child, uh, will inherit the kingdom will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting, as I said last week, that Jesus never tells children to act like adults. He will always say, adults... 
act like children. That's why we're so good at it, Will. <laughs> That's why we're so good at it. And so he has this, you're going, wait a second, that seems backwards. Yes, because we're always telling kids what? Grow up. Act more like this. Act more like that. And Jesus says, actually, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is going to be those who can humble themselves like a little child. So now we get into, then we get into Matthew 19, and we're coming off of the transfiguration and the greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus is talking about humility here, and we talked about the hinge verse in Matthew 19 about how we are supposed to be humble like little children, and at the beginning of Matthew 19, talks about, we talked about a biblical worldview for marriage and divorce, and we divined terms and went through that. Feel free to go back and review that to understand a little bit more. But we looked at the first part of Matthew 19 as how we can be set free from our past. Things that have happened in our past, things that we've done, all that stuff, we can be set free from that. The hinge verse being Matthew chapter 19, uh, verse 13 through 15, one day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bringing them to Jesus, for bothering him, because they assumed it was a bother. I love the fact that, the, that this, was, there was this assumption that, well, Jesus wouldn't want these little ones in here. And I understand. Sometimes when you have an enormous amount of kids around and you start feeling a little psychotic, right? You're kind of like, ah, I'm crazy. When you can sit back and just take it in for what it is, you want these little kids around. You want them. You want to be able to try. It's our responsibility, adults, to make sure that this next generation gets it. It's our responsibility to not just talk about it all the time, but to live it. Your life speaks a much grander sermon than any words that come out of your mouth. They want to see how you're behaving, what you're doing. They see you in a place that they're not sure. I don't remember seeing you here before. And if you're acting foolish, they're going to take that in kind of like, didn't see that coming from that person. There's reasons why I choose to deny myself certain things because I just don't want to be in that scene with people. I don't want to be in a certain scene that people are questioning, what's Pastor Gordon doing and what, what's that lifestyle look like for him and this and that. There's certain ways that I behave and I live so that I can honor the Lord in my behavior. So then he goes on. So, so then the, the uh, disciples are saying, hey, what is wrong with you? you don't bother him. And Jesus... But Jesus, it says, oh man, what a glorious statement in scripture, but Jesus. All these things that have happened before Jesus, right, I went through this, I was in this scene, I believed a certain way, my theology was this, but Jesus. Something refreshing about that. Well, I don't think the disciples thought it was very refreshing because, but Jesus let the little, said, let the little children come to me, don't stop them. Like, he was kind of frustrated with them, probably even angered. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these little children. And he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them before uh, he left. Humility. We need to have humility. Otherwise, we'll never come to a point of acknowledging that we even need Jesus. And so this hinge verse goes from the beginning of Matthew 19, you can be set free from your past, into this next portion of Matthew 19, verses 16 to 30, where you can see how you can be set free from whatever future you think you're supposed to be. 
you can actually be set free from whatever future you think's waiting you. Well, I guess that's just my lot in life. I guess that's just kind of how it's supposed to be. I guess I'm just going to head this direction. And you can actually be set free from wherever you think you're heading. And the pivotal element of all this is coming to Jesus with the heart of a child. So we're going to start in um, Matthew 16, uh, Matthew 19, verse 16. I'm going to read through the passage. I want to get a whole big picture of it, and then I'm going to go back and I'm going to break it down for us. All right, verse 16 here. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good, but to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones, the man asked. And Jesus replied, you must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal or testify falsely. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they said. Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Then Peter said to him, We've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you will have been, uh, you who have been my followers, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the other 12 tribes, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much. In return, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be the least then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. So let's walk through this little by little. You get the grand scheme of this, of what this looks like, and I'm going to be pulling from a little bit, primarily looking at Matthew's uh, recollection of this story, but also pulling Luke and Mark. Ultimately, God is the author of this. Obviously, when I say things like, so Matthew decided to put this in, it's not that some random guy sat down with a random pen and a random piece of paper and started writing stuff out. God was guiding this conversation the whole way, working through the individuals and their personalities to talk through this content. So we're looking at Matthew here, verse 16. Someone came to Jesus with this question, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, in other translations, it actually reads, good master, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? 
I wonder why this young, rich ruler, we, we know him as he's young, which talked about later in Matthew, ruler, I believe Luke talks about as a ruler. So this young, rich ruler, why would he come to Jesus for anything? He's got it all. He's a ruler of something. He's got great wealth because his possessions are many. So he's coming to Jesus because he's acknowledging there's something that he may not have. What could that be? There's this wrestling. All of us are created in the image of God. All of us, at some point in time, can, can say there, there's this moment in which I think there's something missing. That's why unbelievers are so restless at times. That's why believers are restless, because they don't really even know their real identity in Christ. And so he's wrestling with this moment. Why ask me what is good, or, or, or call me good, in other translations would say? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Now, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Now, either one of two options here. Either Jesus is saying, because I'm not good. Or he's declaring he is God. Look at this for a moment. Why ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. Jesus, of course, being God, he is the only one that is good. Like I said, either he's, either he's saying that he's not any good, which we know is not the case, or he's actually laying out a little bit of his divinity. So, but to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. I find it really peculiar, of course, because I'm not God, right? Uh, is that why, would, why would Jesus lead him down a path that he wasn't... Like, that wasn't the goal. The, the path was, maybe it was Jesus' goal, of course, but it wasn't the accurate, it, it wasn't the way to heaven. It wasn't the way. And so, he says, well, how do I inherit, how do I get this internal life? How do I inherit it, right? I want this thing. What good thing must I do, good teacher? Because his theology is a mess. He's thinking, okay, first I put Jesus on the same playing field as everybody else. You're a good teacher, you're a good teacher, you're a good teacher. I'm just trying to figure out what's the good thing I got to do. I wonder if he's asked other rabbis. Hey, what good thing do I need to do? What good thing do I need to do? Just do, okay. And then maybe he asks, it comes to Jesus. Maybe he heard about this eternal life through preaching and the disciples. Who knows? But he knows something's missing. And Jesus says... If you want to inherit eternal life, receive it, then keep the commandments. That's right up my alley. Yeah, baby, let's go. Which ones? And Jesus says, well, you must not murder, must not commit adultery, don't steal, don't testify falsely or lie, honor your father and mother, which all of those, those five are consistent in, the, in, in Mark and Luke. But the one that's unique to Matthew is the final commandment that he lays out here. That's actually a summing up of the meaning of the law. And love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, okay. You see the young, young rich ruler, he's going check, 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 check. I've obeyed all these commandments. What else must I do? There's got to be something else. See, see, he's aware there's got to be something. I've already done that. I know I don't have this eternal life yet. So what else is there? There's got to be one more thing. 
And Jesus takes it another step further. This is why Jesus does what Jesus does. He's so good at being God. He's, he's kind of like a dentist. You ever been at a dentist where the dentist, real kind individual, hey, that hurt? No. Is that hurt? No. Is that, ah, found it. Jesus is probing here to find, not because Jesus doesn't know what it is or where it is, but to help reveal what's really going on here. Watch this. So Mark chapter 10, verse 21, going along with this story, says that Jesus looked at the man and he felt genuine love for him. For whatever reason, Matthew and Luke don't bring that in. They just simply are like, oh yeah, then he said, but Mark noticed something. The Lord showed him something unique. He felt genuine love. Now what is that? What does that mean? Well, to dearly love, to be fond of, right? I'm awfully fond of you. But there's also more to it. This fact that he showed genuine love towards this young rich ruler also is a sense of true intimate connection that Jesus is inviting this young rich ruler into the next part of this conversation. It's, hey, entertain this thought with me, or I welcome you into this next thought. So, so Mark says that Jesus felt genuine love for this guy, certainly a level of compassion, but I'm ready to, this is the epitome of speaking the truth in love. Genuine love, but I'm not going to back away from the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth. Jesus told him, well, if you want to be perfect or fully mature, if you want to receive this inheritance, this inheritance, go and sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Does anybody need that interpreted? Pretty clear, straightforward. Jesus is pretty simple. Okay, so all you got to do is go sell everything you got, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. I get it, but I don't like it. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad. Why would, you've got everything. Money, possessions, I'm sure you have possibly wives. Like you have all that. And Jesus says, well, just get rid of that. You want internal life, right? Isn't that what you wanted? Great, go get rid of all of it. And he just couldn't do it. You see, Jesus touched on the nerve of the commandment that he has not kept. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, it reads, You must not have any other gods but me. The young rich ruler didn't realize that his possessions was his God. Until Jesus went in there and said, is this it? No? Is this it? Ah, there you are. Not for Jesus to learn, but for Jesus to teach. And the young man went away after Jesus exposed his heart. Now, there's times in our life where Jesus will expose things in our life and it'll sound kind of difficult because it might come from 
a person, a human that looks like me, might look like your spouse, might look like your friend. And they're going to reveal truth to you. They're going to share truth because they learn it from God's word. And they say, hey, your life doesn't appear to be lining up with scripture. Can we talk about this for a moment? And then you have a decision to make. You're either going to say, you know what? You're right. Or you're going to get mad at that person. You're going to be, instead of just sad and walk away, you're going to get angry and walk away. And then you're going to drift towards sadness. But you don't want to be sad because, after all, they're wrong, right? So you go back to anger. A little bit of sadness, back to anger. Before you know it, we call it something, we, we call it, maybe it's church hurt, which is a legitimate thing, but maybe not in this context. And we just, we run away from it. We are not so different from the young rich ruler. I appreciate the honesty within this story. He was sad. You mean I got to give up all that? I mean, think about it. There's Jesus face to face with him and there's all his stuff, his money. And he had to sit there. Hmm. I go with you. It's kind of uncertain. You don't even know where you're going. Humanly speaking. But my money keeps me solid. It keeps me grounded. keeps me focused. keeps me going. I know I've got a firm foundation over here. Is that not the lie? All my stuff, all my things, that's going to keep me going because I'm used to that. He never even gave himself a chance to really get used to a different type of way of living and following Jesus. He simply, the idea is that he just kind of dropped his head and he walked away. Maybe not even a goodbye, not even a thank you, not even a response, but just simply moved away. Then Jesus said to his disciples, so Jesus takes moments, he's always teaching us, looks at his disciples and says, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to say it again. This is what he's, this is so important. I want you to understand and grasp this. I want you to get this. I'm going to say it again, but he says it a little differently. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, track with me for a minute on this. None of you giggled at that, right? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You're kind of like, yeah, that's. Jesus said weird things. Well, that's kind of a colloquialism. And, and so 2,000 years later, we wouldn't get it. But they might have had a little moment of a, oh, okay, that seems impossible. Uh, and so I have looked at this differently, and I guess it could still be. But as I looked at the words a little bit more intently, there, there was a moment where I leaned more towards there being a, a door on the side of, of, the, of Jerusalem, the walls. And in order to be able to get into there, there was a smaller door, the eye of the needle, and the camel had to go through that. And it was excruciatingly hard to get through it. The challenge with that interpretation is that it implies that you work hard enough, you can do it. It doesn't seem consistent with God's word. So as I look at the words a little bit more, the eye of a needle, 
It's actually more straightforward than you think. When we think of an eye, the eye of a needle, it's a sewing needle where you have like this little hole, and that's where you put the thread through. You know with me, you're with me, right? And he says, hey, it would be easier for a camel to get through that hole. And they're, pro- they're thinking, <laughs> what? <laughs> and so that's why the disciples were astounded. And they said, then who in the world can be saved? Because they acknowledged it wasn't just a very hard thing to do, but it was impossible to be done. All of us need to understand the impossibility of us making heaven on our own. It's not just a hard thing. It's impossible. And so when they looked at this, when they heard this, they're like, well, then who can even get there? Who could even be saved? Jesus looked at them intently. Jesus probably gave them that Jesus look. You know? You may not have gotten the Jesus look, but you know when Jesus isn't happy with you. He's like, what are you doing? And he looks at them intently, and he says, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Everything is possible. Then Peter, one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture, then Peter um. We've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? Peter, right? <laughs> Come on, Lord, you're passing it out. Yeah, we, we did that. We left everything behind, right? Some left wives behind, definitely houses behind, jobs behind, sense of security behind. Lord, we're with you. We did that. I'm just curious. I just want to peek in the envelope a little bit. What's my pay? What's this look like? What do we get from this? I mean, you understand that question, right? Like, you get it. Hey, you want to come over and work for me for the next six months, and, and, and we'll pay you, and, and, and we'll do, do a job. Hey, no problem. Just working out my budgetary needs? How much do you think that's going to be? You want to make an agreement, right? I appreciate the fact that Peter's asking this. They've been following Jesus for a while now. It's like, huh. So what do we get out of this? And Jesus says something is a truth. But let's, let's look at what he's saying here, because this is much bigger than we're going to be able to conceive. Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, You who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses and brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now, who appear to be the greatest now, will be the least important then and those who seem and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then you tracking with this kiddos you guys okay you okay okay just checking on you that person we walk by 
and ignore that we would say is the least around here could be the greatest if they humbly acknowledge their need for a savior. The people that we look at are all on TV and they're on billboards and everything and we say, wow, they're the greatest could very well be the least of them all. See, Jesus didn't have a backwards kingdom. We live a backwards life. He's just trying to explain the way it's supposed to be in our terms so we can understand it. What Jesus is talking about here is much bigger than right now. Much bigger right now. Specifically, Jesus is talking about the thousand-year reign in which Jesus will come and rule from Jerusalem, and his disciples will sit on 12 thrones with him, and believers, likewise, will rule with him. And you're like, what? We're going to be like rulers and stuff? Yeah. Like later? What about now? And let's just be honest. I want to be paid now. I don't want to be paid later. And it's typically because I want everybody to see it. Think about that for a minute. You're going to get the greatest reward there is. And we're going to argue with the Lord. Yeah, but can I get broke off a little bit right now? We're going to argue with that, right? We're going to argue with that. You have, see, here's the hardest thing about it is that we have such little concept of the glory that awaits us compared to what the stuff that we're going through now is nothing. The glory is going to be so much grander, so much more intense and amazing. We're going to get to rule with Christ. And we're upset because our neighbor got a boat. And you didn't. Jesus, I don't understand. I've been there. I've been there where I wonder, Lord, where do you have me? Where do you want me? Oh, I don't, get, I don't have that. I'd like to have that. Can I take another avenue to get that? And at the end of the day, if the Lord allows, that's how it goes. You've got to stop controlling things. And Peter wants to know, what are we going to get? And Jesus lays it out. Here's what's going to go on. Now, you may not fully understand or grasp the thousand-year, the millennial reign, um, the regeneration, what that looks like. We're going to get to that when we get into January, when I go into Matthew 24, 25. And we're going to lay out some of that and kind of talk through end times for about two weeks or so. So we'll understand that a little bit better once we get there. But Jesus says, you're going to have the greatest reward ever. And this is what it looks like. So what do we do with that? What do I learn from the young rich ruler? You might even refer to him, spiritually speaking, as the young poor ruler. Spiritually, he was poor. He had nothing. And that's the acknowledgement we need to get to. So what can I learn from this? I want you to understand these three things. Good is simply not good enough. Good is simply not good enough. The whole theology of the young rich ruler was that all I got to do is work hard and then I'll get it. I'm going to have my faith because of my works. I'm actually going to have my faith because of all the things that I am doing. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not how it works. You got to understand good is simply not good enough. He assumes that there's something good that he can do. He came with the assumption, hey, give me the list. I'll make it happen. 
After all, my whole life I've done good things. You just listed out a bunch of things and I've done those. What else can I do? You see, Ephesians chapter 2 says the opposite of doing to receive. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Why? Because we're going to. And we'll try to tell other people about Jesus, but because, but because we work to get our salvation, we say, well, you may not be able to be as good as me, but you can get somewhere in life. And we would make it all about us, this boasting, make it such a, oh man, look at me, look at me. Even think about the way that people talk when they explain a gift versus what they've earned. Consider this for a moment. When you talk to somebody and you say things like, hey, look at what I bought, look at what I did, look at what I, and you may have worked hard for that. No, I'm not doubting that, and I'm not even discrediting that. But there's a difference in the conversation. When somebody says, look what I got, look what I did, versus I want to show you a gift that I got. Feel that already? I want to show you something that I got. And you can find yourself maybe even almost, if you understand the fact that somebody gave you a gift and it was such a precious gift, it might even make you choked up inside to say, wow, I don't even know why they did this, but this was such a gift. Look at what they did for me. God has been so good. A gift you just can't boast about. You can try, but the reality is you got a gift. and You didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. Somebody gave it to you because they were like, you know what? I'm going to give them the gift. Good is simply not good enough. As you can imagine, as a pastor, I officiate a number of funerals. Sometimes I know the people, and sometimes I get a call from the local funeral homes around town, and, and they say things like, hey, um, I got a family here. They don't have a pastor. Would you be willing to come and down and do this? And I know you're almost kind of like, how do you do that? It's not easy, to be honest with you. But you, I meet with the family, give me about an hour, hour and a half for their time, and I say, introduce your loved one to me, uh, because I didn't know your loved one. You do, so tell me. And it's interesting to me, 99.9% .9 of the time, they're all good, they're all going to heaven, and they were the best there ever was. Let's break that down a little bit. <laughs> okay. So you just told me you didn't even know your mom. Uh, she left a long time ago. You've been mad for years, and then you said she's the greatest of all time. Um, let's talk through this. What are, you, what are you getting at here? The reality is when I say things like, hey, tell me about their faith. Tell me about their faith when you were growing up, what it was like. Oh, man, I tell you what, they went to church for about three months when I was four. But they've always believed in God, always done good things, always took care of us, which may be true. But it's not the way to heaven. I don't think... Unless it was a real, honest, straightforward conversation, rarely nobody... Mostly, nobody tells me, oh, that person's definitely not making it. They don't. Why? Because they think good is simply good enough. Well, if anybody's going to make it in, they're going to make it in because they bake so good. They, they, they work so hard. We have to understand the truth. Good is simply not good enough. Jesus says, why do you, why do you say that I'm good? There is only one that is good. 
And he's the one that made a way to the Father. We know this when Thomas was talking to Jesus and said, we don't know where you're going, what's the way? Jesus says, here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He's the only way. You see, good is simply not good enough. Secondly, that I observe from this passage is money is often the God in our lives. Typically, the last thing that we will let go of and fully follow Jesus is money. Money's not the issue. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. Money's not the issue. Having money's not the issue. We're told in Scripture that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the fact that you lean on your finances for security rather than leaning on the Lord for his security. Because after all, I mean, you know, it's just a faith thing, but this money's solid, and it's, and it's, it's here, and I got it. And you know what? And I talk to people about they're, they're, they're watching the de-dollarization of America and all these different things. No doubt. I'm sure things are falling apart more than I realize. But that's not our Savior. Manage your stuff well. Be good stewards. Have a retirement Do what you know you're supposed, these are wise things to do, but don't think for a second that your eternal security is resting on what you have. Nothing that we have is worthy of us leaning on. Only through God alone. I know you say, I hear that all the time, Pastor, it sounds like a cliche. Maybe it sounds that way because it's not getting in. It literally is God alone. You know, Jesus talks about adults being like children, not children being like adults. And I think about this. I think about money and how it has a hold on us sometimes. I, I think about how we think we own, we own our money when our money actually owns us. And I think about, okay, so let's go back. Take me back to the heart of a child, humility. Have you ever seen, I see it a lot because I'm probably closer to children than you are intellectually, mentally, you know, emotionally. And, and so I see it often where you see this little one that gets an eye on you like, and they come running, right? And they open themselves up and they, right? Because their arms are so small, not because I'm so big. And, and, they're, and they have little hands and their hands are shaking because they're trying to squeeze you so hard. And then you go, oh man, that's such a big hug. Not a care in the world. Because that moment of who they're with, it's enough. It's enough. They're not like, oh, man, it's so good to see you. Let me see how my retirement plan's going. Yeah, all right, bring it in. They're not leaning their security on their finances. They're leaning into this moment with the person they're with. You know, Jesus is supposed to be enough. That's the idea of coming to Christ with the heart of a child. Jesus is actually supposed to be enough. And until you discover that, you may not fully receive that. 
Jesus really is enough. I don't care. Let me back that up. I'm not overwhelmed with all the things the world's going through. Yeah, there's plenty for us to get mad about. Plenty. But at the end of the day, there is a Savior that's going to fix all this. And it's not you. It's not me. And it's not anybody leading a country or a group of people. No government's going to do this. Though I'm grateful to live where I live and be where I'm at. Keep in mind, we are citizens of a new place, a new home. I am physically here as an American, but make no mistake, I am fully a citizen of heaven. Don't even call me a dual citizen. I am fully a citizen of heaven. And so rules are different in my mind. I offer forgiveness to people that are lying to me on the TV. I choose to pray for those who steal from us the last few dollars we have. I choose to trust that God is in control and that money is not our God. So good is simply not good enough. Money is often the God of our lives. And I would encourage you to pray through that. Lord, do I rest too much on my finances and my possessions? Lord, show me. Lord, reveal to me. Help me. Have a moment of prayer with that. One good way is to check uh, however you keep track of your spending and see where it's all going. And number three, everyone can be saved. Not everyone will be saved. Everyone can be saved. If you look at John chapter 3, for this is how God loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Everyone is invited to sit at the table of the Lord, to sit in this seat. Everyone is invited. The challenge is that not everybody will. The, the road to destruction is wide. The road to heaven is narrow, and few find it. So everyone can be. Everyone's invited. But not everyone will be saved. We studied this in Matthew 7, verse 22. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform miracles in your name. They probably called themselves a church. Ever consider that? This was probably a well-known church group of sorts. Hey, we did all these things in your name. Jesus says, I'm going to reply to those people. I never knew you. Get away from you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. And just to be clear, we are all the people that break God's law. All of us. The only difference that separates us from people that will not inherit eternal life is Jesus. Anyone who listens to my teachings, Jesus says, and follows it, is wise. Like the person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes and the torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish 
like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against the house, it'll collapse with a mighty crash. Make no mistake about this. Not all dogs go to heaven. You need to know that you know. Stop pretending. Stop playing a game. Humbly acknowledge that moment. You just humbly acknowledge, Jesus, I can't make it on my own. Not just talking about in this world, but the fact of just even getting in right relationship with God, we will all fall short. And we do. So let's sum this up in one big idea. Trust the Savior, not your savings. Have one. You should be wise about your stewardship. You should be willing to uh, have fun so that you can be generous to other people as well. But don't trust in it. Because if it all goes away, you should still be okay. How? Because you're following Jesus. Because you're following the Savior. Will it hurt? Most likely. Will you be sad? Oh, absolutely. Because the way of life you knew, it will be gone. And now you, ignite, now you can see, wow, I really only have Jesus. What a beautiful place to get to, to acknowledge. Listen, I only got Jesus. That's probably why it's so much easier for individuals that have walked through addiction, lost everything in their life, can truly acknowledge like, wow, I literally have nothing. Jesus, I'm emptied of myself. I got nothing else. Okay, I'm ready to listen. And some of the most powerful testimonies come from people who acknowledged, hey, I only got Jesus. And we're trying to figure out, well, yeah, well, you went through this, yeah. But I'm free from my past. And you can be free of whatever future you think you have. So what do I do moving forward? What's the next step? Humble yourself before the Lord and acknowledge your need for him. Yep, sound familiar? Keep doing that. Keep saying those moments. Every time you wake up this week, Lord, I just come to you and I say that I need you. You are God, I am not. What a great way to show humility. You are God and I am not. Humble yourself before the Lord, acknowledging that you need him. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that this word's never going to pass away. Thank you that it is exactly what we need. Thank you for this guide. Oh, man, if we didn't have your word, then we would just lean on whatever we thought was our understanding. We would say a whole bunch more of I thinks and I thinks, and I think we should. And But the truth of the matter is, we just need to always come back to what your word says. What's the Bible say about that? I pray that you will give us great compassion for those who are not there yet. Great understanding for us who are still learning. And I pray that you'll guide us throughout this week to live according to your word. Thank you so much for your compassion, God. Thank you for loving us, though we don't deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen. For next week, read Matthew chapter 20.
And then uh, we'll go through about half of Matthew 20 or so, the first portion of that. And then um, go into Christmas. Yeah, Christmas is here. Who has a tree up yet? Don't answer that. All right, will you please stand? Receive the blessing of the Lord as we head out here today. Now devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Say it with me. Go and be the church.